Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. We've got a lot to get to today and I'm excited to do it. Uh, In just a bit, I'm going to be joined by Kyle Warner. He's a 29-year-old professional mountain bike racer who says he's been struggling for six months with adverse side effects from getting a second dose of the COVID vaccine. Uh, He's going to detail his experience. And then Ali Beth Stuckey Stuckey is here with us. We're excited to talk about San Fran's Mayor London Breed doing a full 180 on her push to defund the police. Guess how that worked out? Yeah, you know the answer. But we begin with Andrew Brenka. He is an attorney. He's the founder of Law of Self-Defense defense, and he works to help armed law-abiding citizens make better and informed decisions. He's been following, you remember him from the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, now he's been following the trial of former Minnesota police officer Kim Potter, and is here to detail the latest on that. Andrew, you got uh, Rittenhouse right, predicted accurately how it would turn out, because you, unlike most, followed the facts and know the law. How's it going in the case of Kim Potter? Well, it's been a tough prosecution for the state, and they had a very, very, very bad morning this morning. The defense uh, finally got to present their case. The state rested first thing this morning. The defense first witness was their use of force expert, and this guy was a monster on the witness stand for the defense, especially compared to the relatively ineffectual use of force expert the state presented yesterday. Hmm. Now, just to remind our audience, Kim Potter is the police officer in Minnesota who, not long after George Floyd's death, took out her what she thought was her taser, yelled taser, 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 and shot uh, Dante Wright, killing him. In fact, she had pulled out her firearm and it was an obvious mistake. No one's claiming really that it was anything other than a mistake. It's just that the prosecution run by Keith Ellison, uh, the AG of Minnesota, is trying to criminalize that mistake. I've been following your coverage because it's always amazing. These are a couple of points I wrote down. The prosecution's direct examinations were painfully and unnecessarily long, detailed, bookish. The cross-examinations have been quick, pointed, effective, and merciful. A jury can wind up holding that against lawyers or come to like the other lawyers better for not wasting their time. Yeah, I think the difficulty for the state is they really don't have a case on the legal merits. I mean, I think everyone would agree that Potter's conduct was negligent, which is civil liability, and she should lose her job and be sued and all that. The question is, does it rise to criminal conduct? And to be criminal, she would have to have intentionally ignored a risk of death that she was aware of. That's what recklessness is. That's what creates criminal culpability. But all the evidence tells us she had no idea that was a gun in her hand. She clearly believed it was a taser. So she was not intentionally ignoring a risk. Therefore, her conduct was not criminally reckless. And that's a a problem the state just has not been able to overcome. So they've been saying a lot of words in their direct testimony, hours of it at a time from each witness, but none of it on the actual relevant legal question. Mm. The um, what's been stunning is it's it is going so poorly for the prosecution that now they were forced to file a motion to try to to ask for permission to impeach their own witnesses. As you point out, the defense is just now starting its case. So all of this happened during the prosecution's case where they put on Kim Potter's um, co-worker, her her fellow officer, Sergeant Johnson. Uh, They put on her commander, uh, Garrett Flesland, Flesland. And um, those went very poorly for the prosecution. Now they want to impeach their own witnesses. What was it? I guess let's start with Johnson, if you know, Sergeant Johnson, her co-worker. What was so so good for Kim Potter in that testimony that they now want it stricken. 
the prosecution so the two, who put it on. The, the two officers with uh, Potter at the arrest of Dante Wright, the attempted arrest, uh, were Officer Lucky, a trainee, and Officer Johnson, a very experienced sergeant. Uh, Officer Lucky said if he'd had the option, he would have tased Dante Wright. Officer Johnson said he would have shot Dante Wright. So those are the two other officers on the scene, and they both say, I would have done what Kim Potter intended to do or worse and been justified in doing that. Mm -hmm. So then, of course, the state, these are the state's witnesses testifying. Right. Yeah, so uh, uh, Sergeant Johnson got up there. He didn't have to be called, but, but the prosecution called him. And uh, here's just a little snippet of how he sounded in speaking to this jury. There was a statement by Officer Potter, I'm going to tase you. He didn't stop then either, did he? No. And if he had taken off with you in that car halfway, what would have happened to you? Do you what would you think would be the worst that would happen? Probably dragged. Dragged and what? Injured. Seriously injured, maybe even dead, right? Yes. Would it be fair for that officer to use a firearm to stop him? By state statute, yes. So explain to the audience what, what that just established. Uh, Johnson just indicated that the conditions for the lawful use of deadly defensive force in defense of him by another officer would be lawful under Minnesota statute. Obviously, if it's lawful, it's not criminally reckless. And this, right. again, is the state's witness. If she had, in other words, if Kim Potter had intentionally taken out her firearm right. and shot Dante right to death in that moment, it would have been legally justified. And Correct. what we're learning, you know, as the case fills out, we learn more about him, Wright, and others, is this this is not a good person. I mean, this, he was a serial criminal. It doesn't justify one way or another uh, what happened that day. That's up for the, to the jury. But right. I Dante mean, there's Wright evidence was a the serial... jury won't hear, uh, for example, right, they're he not had apparently know. an inch long record of flight from arrest. Uh, non-appearances in court. So this is his modus operandi. This is what he did all the time. Exactly. And unlike us, cops have experience in this neighborhood and understanding the risks and assessing it in a split second. Sometimes they do it well, sometimes they do it poorly. But there was testimony about this area and the risks that are in this area and how dangerous it would be. And then they found out this guy had an open warrant uh, for him, Dante Wright, and, and on a gun charge, a gun possession charge. Now they're like all these things for a cop in the moment, escalate it. Another red flag, another reason to be concerned. And, yep. you know, you oh. and I get to sit back here and the people in the courtroom and say, like, second guess, armchair quarterback, you should have thought. But like there's been testimony proving to this jury how fraught that situation was and how dangerous a guy Dante Wright was. And it's important not to forget there was also an order of protection taken out by a woman against Dante Wright. The officers weren't just protecting themselves. For all they knew, the woman passenger in the car was the woman being protected by this court order. And mm -hmm. until they identified her, if they let him flee, for all they know, this is a kidnap. That's right. Exactly right. So here's uh, Kim Potter's commander, uh, Garrett Flesland. Uh, so the, the question was, and I'm going to play a soundbite. Now, I get this from Andrew because he does a great job of bringing us up to speed. Uh, question, would it be right for an officer to stop a person from fleeing? I mean, duh, right? The, the, the commander says yes. A person who once stopped outside their car without a license, without ID, without with a woman inside the car who might be the subject of a restraining order, would that be appropriate to stop that person? Yes. Was Officer Lucky reprimanded with respect to Dante Wright? No. Was Sergeant Johnson? No. Can it be reasonable to use deadly force if a fellow officer is partly inside a car that is trying to take off? Where the cop would be dragged? Yes. Are traffic stops very dangerous? Yes. 
Even more so if you learn the person stopped has an arrest warrant out uh, for a gun possession offense. Yes, he said, I would be extremely concerned for my own safety and about a gun being present in that situation. Can you force, can you use force to in effect an arrest on a warrant and use force to stop said person from fleeing? Yes, you can, said the commander. And if he keeps fighting after warning, he's going to be tased. And a fellow cop is lying over the passenger in the car fighting to prevent flight uh, by the suspect in his car. Would it be right to use deadly force? Yes. Then comes what Andrew calls the kill shot of the cross-examination, which followed that exchange. Listen to the commander here. How would you describe Kim Potter as a police officer? She's a good cop. She's a good person. She's a she's a friend. Uh, I have no concerns going to calls with her. It's part of the training, uh, trying to teach officers to think uh, in stressful situations in real life. Yes. Would a good police officer try to make good decisions under pressure? I expect good officers to make good decisions. You did say that good officers make good decisions, correct? You just testified to that? My hope is good officers make good decisions, yes. And you did describe Kimberly Potter as a good officer, correct? I did. It's hard to believe I'm watching the prosecution's case. Yeah. And every one of these officers who worked with her for 26 years think the world of her. She was a well-liked, well-respected officer who, let's face it, made a mistake when she pulled her gun intending to go for the taser in highly tumultuous conditions. I mean, if this were a civil lawsuit, she would be able to bring up all of uh, Dante Wright's conduct in this as contributory negligence to whatever her liability would be, because he played a role here, too. Uh, but there's nothing in this case that appears to give rise to actual criminal culpability that justifies this criminal prosecution of her. Mm-hmm. Andrew, this is not a Derek Chauvin. There's been testimony about what if any complaints were brought against Kim Potter. How many have been brought against her? None. There's never been a complaint against her, not a use of force complaint. I guess 24 years ago, she crashed a police car. So she got reprimanded for that when she was a brand new officer. But since then, we're talking multiple decades, no reprimands, no complaints and never a use of force complaint. This is crazy. Dante Wright. Meanwhile, you mentioned the woman who um, he had the altercation with and had a restraining order. She had a restraining order on him and the cops not knowing is this is this the woman in the car? They didn't they didn't know. She actually, along with two other people in two separate lawsuits, uh, is going after his estate. Now, he doesn't have any money, uh, Dante Wright, but his family's getting ready to sue. So they may wind up with money. We'll see. That case will play out separately, the civil lawsuit. But I mean, the week Dante Wright was shot, his mother showed up for her questioning at the police headquarters with Benjamin Crump. Oh, wow. Yeah, of course. He's always in on all these cases. You know, he's been in on all of them trying to get money for himself and his clients. It doesn't usually work out for him. But anyway, um, so that woman was uh, ready to testify the criminal trial against Dante Wright, um, the co-defendant against uh, with Dante Wright in that case, who was who kind of allegedly drove Dante away after he choked this woman who was his girlfriend or friend. He allegedly choked her. He robbed her. He took her stuff and then took off. And he had an accomplice. That guy t- struck a deal and I think was ready to turn on Dante, too. So the woman released a victim impact statement. She's never going to get to get it. Right. Because I mean, now she's filed a civil lawsuit, but the criminal lawsuit's over. He's dead. Um, and Fox News Digital got her, their hands on it. Here's part of it. Listen to her. I have never stared in somebody's eyes while begging to keep my life while also having a gun pointed at my head. 
I was completely vulnerable and in shock. I have never grasped for air as much as I did when I had his hands wrapped around my neck trying to breathe for air. It was like one of those dreams where you're trying to yell, but the sound isn't coming out. The mental trauma I had to go through during that period of time still affects me to this day in multiple areas of my life. Okay, so here's my question. There's that lawsuit. There's two more lawsuits. He he allegedly shot a kid named Caleb Livingston, who was um, 16. He's now permanently disabled. His lawyer says uh, Dante had a criminal history from age of 12. He had committed to a lifestyle of crime. Another guy, Joshua Hodges, they're, his, they're suing um, Dante's estate for um, assault and battery. Joshua says he was robbed and assaulted by him, that he, that Dante's accomplice shot Josh Hodges in the leg, and then they took off with his car and his phone and all that. So, okay, a lot of people claim that they've been victimized by Dante Wright. None of it comes in because prior bad acts, character evidence generally doesn't come into a criminal trial to convince the jury this is a bad man. He deserved to die. That's not how the law works. However, why did they let Dante Wright's dad take the stand and say he was a good boy and then didn't walk through that door? No, he wasn't. He wasn't a good boy. Yeah, a big part of this trial has been a lot of discussions with the parties and the judge in at sidebar off the record or at least off the broadcast record. So we don't know why some of these decisions were made. The, the defense did have a standing objection for the entirety of the father's testimony. All the father really did was testify that his son is a, was a great son and a great father to his newborn baby and everybody loved him. And of course, none of this was discussed by the father and there was no cross-examination by the father. Minnesota has a weird provision that allows for what they call spark of life evidence. Even in the guilt phase of the trial, I think it's crazy to allow that. I think it's extremely prejudicial and not at all probative. Doesn't help the jury arrive at a informed verdict uh, at all. But Minnesota law allows for it. So I presume that the rationale for allowing the dad's testimony was that spark of life. What does that evidence. mean? Spark of life. This was a real human being. He had people who loved him. It's the kind of stuff that you would normally expect. In most states, they wouldn't allow that until after a guilty verdict as part yeah. of the sentencing uh, procedure, for example. Uh, the, the kind of uh, witness statement that you just aired uh, from the woman who was the victim in that prior crime. Mm -hmm. But in Minnesota, they allow some of that kind of testimony in the guilt phase of the trial before a verdict's even been reached. And I, I think it's outrageously prejudicial, but it's what the law there allows for. Uh, all right. Final question, because I know you got to get back to it. Um, what even though it's going so well for Kim Potter and her defense, how do you handicap her odds of an acquittal? Because this case could very well come down to the instructions on the law on what equals recklessness is a good faith mistake enough or does she you know, have, to have some higher level of culpability? And so do you still think that that could be an, you know, a saving grace for the prosecution? I've always felt from the beginning that there, there was no the evidence here is not really in dispute. It's all caught on body camera. I don't even know why we have a jury because the jury is supposed to be finders of facts and the facts aren't really in dispute here. Um, and I've never thought the state had an argument for uh, recklessness anyway. So I think the charges should have been dismissed. We shouldn't even be a trial. In fact, today, the judge said in sidebar that, well, you know, the facts aren't really in dispute. And I'm like, well, why are we here then? What is the purpose of this trial? if There's no facts in dispute. Then it's simply a matter of law. And the judge is supposed to decide the law. And if the judge decides, well, this qualifies as recklessness under the law, she's guilty. And if the judge decides it doesn't, she's acquitted. There shouldn't even be a trial. Uh, so it's somewhat bewildering to me why the state is being allowed to go forward with this really novel 
view of what criminal recklessness qualifies for. And unfortunately, there's never a 0% chance of getting convicted, no matter how innocent you are. Uh, I actually, I don't predict verdicts just for that reason. You might get an irrational jury. You might get a jury who's afraid to go back to their community after having acquitted a defendant. There's lots mm -hmm. of reasons a jury might vote for guilt despite the lack of legal merit for that verdict. Are the jury instructions set? Uh, well, they're never finally set until the last moment because they're always subject to revision based on testimony that occurred over the course of the trial. But they weren't really set, even in a preliminary way, at the start of the trial, which is another thing that's outrageous. We saw that in the Rittenhouse case as well. How are the lawyers supposed to know what to argue to, what points to emphasize if they don't know even prospectively, what the elements of the criminal charge are going to be. And they didn't. This issue of recklessness was not absolutely defined by the judge before the trial started. Mm, that's a problem. And I know you said this. You've been watching uh, the Ahmad Arbery case clearly and closely, too. That was another problem there. The judge didn't want to get too specific on the self-defense law there, the citizen's arrest the Citizen's law. arrest, right there and and both of these judges they need to show courage these are racially fraught cases you know rightly or wrongly i mean amard arbery definitely this one you know she's a white police officer um the judge has to show some courage in instructing the jury on the law that's literally her job so right. hopefully she'll she'll give a nice clear instruction that both sides can live with um so far what i've seen is very confusing and even i as a lawyer i'm like wait what andrew you've been the greatest thank you so much and we'll let you get back to it and ho hopefully come back with another update when uh, the case progresses sounds great megan thanks see you soon coming up we're going to be joined by our friend our, by our friend ali beth stuckey who's going to talk uh joe biden nancy pelosi wait until you hear what she's saying about the crime wave in her hometown of san francisco billy eilish oh and by the way did you see ben affleck trying to do cleanup in aisle seven there were like four articles and people magazine and all the other like oh and then he went on kimmel last night and we'll tell you what he said let, let me give you a clue he's feeling sorry for himself Now, Allie Beth Stuckey, host of Relatable on Blaze TV and author of You're Not Enough, and That's Okay. Allie Beth, so good to have you back. How are you? Thanks for having me. Doing well. How are you? I am great. I'm great. Like the news cycle lately has been really interesting to me. Like it's firing on all the things that I, I, I most feel fired up about. And this yep. is one of them, right? Crime. The crime wave that was the natural result of defunding the police in so many cities, electing and putting in place these soft on crime prosecutors, changing our laws to require no bail and so on and so forth. And we it's it happened fast. You know, it's you can see before your very eyes within you know a year of some of those things happening. The crime rates go up double digits in city after city after city. And I mean, perhaps. No one's gotten it worse than San Francisco for a combination of reasons. So their mayor, London Breed, she, I'm going to play the soundbite, but man, listening to her soundbite, Allie Beth, you would think that she was like a Trump law and order, law and order person, right? <laughs> this, she, she has got the solution to the problem she caused. We'll get to her background in a second, but listen to how ticked off she is now. Now about the crime in San Francisco. And it's time that the reign of criminals who are destroying our city, it is time for it to come to an end. And it comes to an end when we take the steps to be more aggressive 
with law enforcement, more aggressive with the changes in our policies, and less tolerant of all the bullshit that has destroyed our city. She's tough. She sounds really tough. And yet there's a backstory. Your thoughts on it? You know, I'm glad to hear her say this. I'm sure a lot of people in San Francisco are also glad to hear her say this. But of course, the policies that she has reported or has supported and that Chesa Boudin have supported and all of the progressives, the local elected officials have supported over the past several years have, of course, led to this, enabled this, encouraged this, exacerbated what was a pre-existing problem in San Francisco. So I'm glad to see this pivot. I hope it translates into real policy change. But I also, when I heard this for the first time yesterday, I think I was watching some news show. My response was, really? Really? After all of this time, this is what you're saying, acting like this has been your consistent position when obviously it hasn't. So it's hypocritical, but I am hopeful that maybe it'll it'll translate into some kind of positive change. Right. And hopefully not just there. This, this is she went on to say as follows. Um, this is a city that has a population of less than one million people with an over 12 billion dollar budget. The residents of this city have been extremely generous in providing us with the resources we need to make a difference. And now the priorities we need to make must be to protect them, must be to turn things around in their neighborhoods. Well, duh, right? It's like at at some point, the people who are getting robbed, held up, burgled, shot, murdered, their kids witnessed things like this on the way to school are going to rise up even in the most liberal, progressive city in America, where give you a couple of stats. Homicides are up 17 percent in 2021. By the way, same percentage in L.A., Oakland and San Diego. Great job, California. Uh, Car break ins are up in San Fran, 21 percent. Vehicle thefts up 10 percent. In 2019, 40 percent of shoplifting incidents led to an arrest. In 2021, it's only 19 percent. I mean, shoplift away if you're in San Fran. You're good. You just take what you want. Truly, they're not going to come after you. The San Francisco DA, DA, who you just mentioned, Chesa Boudin, is a problem. This guy is a problem. He charged 46 percent of the arrests that came to him for theft. That's a 16 point decline since he took office in 2020. He charged just 35 percent of petty theft arrests. That's a 23 percent decline from 2019. Um, And basically what led uh, London Breed, the mayor, to come out there is more than 200 people in the mostly poor working class uh, tenderloin uh, neighborhood of San Fran came to her upset that there had been a 161 percent increase in the violence of their neighborhood between last year and this, including a brutal attack on an 11 year old girl. So where do they go? Where do the parents of that girl go for their for their justification, for their retribution? Right. Human beings don't do chaos well. We don't like anarchy. As much as progressives like to say that they envision this utopia, which of course means no place in which criminals uh, no longer commit crimes because there are no longer punishments for crime. Of course, that's part of this crazy progressive dogma that if they no longer enforce the law, uh, then people will just somehow get along and be happy and rehabilitate naturally and all of this crazy pie in the sky stuff. Okay, that sounds good. 
Um, it sounds maybe like a place where people would want to live that would end up in some kind of peaceful harmony, but it just doesn't work like that. Progressives continually get human nature wrong. One part of human nature is that we do not tolerate chaos. We don't tolerate violence. Even the most progressive among us, once they see the consequences, the violent consequences, the destruction that always comes from social justice, they end up pivoting. Social justice kills. This is the latest example of that. Hopefully, people will realize that these pie-in-the-sky policies just aren't going to work. Um, I'll hold my breath. I, I, I'm not so sure about that, but but we'll see. And I, and I am a little optimistic after hearing London Breed. That is the most succinct synopsis of the social justice problems that I've heard. Social justice kills. It does. Yep. You're 100 percent right. And We're seeing it. And you know who it kills more than anybody else? Black and brown people in the inner city. It does. And, you know, Thomas Sowell, he wrote this great book called Quest for Cosmic Justice, where he talks about these people who are basically social engineers, that they create all of these social solutions to what they call problems that they're never actually affected by. And the problem with social or cosmic justice is that the people who create these so-called solutions, like defunding the police or something like that, or um, getting rid of single-family housing zones all in the name of equity, they never think of the other side of the equation. So opening the border or getting rid of single-family housing zones or defunding the police or taking away guns, they might think that theoretically it would work for one side of the equation. They never think about the consequences on the other side of the equation. The consequence that we're seeing on the other side of the social justice equation of defunding the police or refusing to prosecute crimes is dead people. So people get really mad when I say that social justice kills, especially in the Christian community, because social justice sounds really good, but mm -hmm. the reality is, is that it's always detrimental. Mm -hmm. And then you've got, speaking of that, right, sort of the, it's always like some wealthy white woman who's far left trying to dictate for these communities how they need to live and how things need to be to make her feel better in her. And she just bought some gazillionaire property in Florida, by the way, among other places, Nancy Pelosi. She's not even gonna have to live there. She didn't have to worry about it. Um, nope. She she comments on this. She, guess what she's interested in? The smash and grab robberies at Gucci and all the other department <laughs> stores in San Francisco. She's horrified. <laughs> she comes out and says, right. It's absolutely outrageous, this attitude of lawlessness. And then asked, well, do you agree with London Breed, you know, the mayor of San Fran about what's happening there? No, she wouldn't go that far. <laughs> so the, right. the people on the tenderloin are going to have to just deal with it. The, the, the future 11 year olds are going to have to do But you better crack down on what's happening at Gucci for the love of God. Right. That is so Nancy Pelosi. That is so Nancy Pelosi. And she is exactly what I was talking about of someone who will not be affected by the policy or the lack of enforcement of the law uh, that she seems to advocate for. Of course, she wants to say, oh, this stuff is really bad. She wants to at least rhetorically seem like she's representing or defending her constituents. But when it comes to action, well, she's also got to acquiesce to and appease the radicals in her party, which is anti law enforcement. So she's mm -hmm. acting like she's confused about where lawlessness is coming from. And she maybe she that. is confused. Yeah, she yeah did. Maybe that's a quote she, she said. Um, I, the quote yes. is, uh, I just want to make sure people have it. Um, the, the fact that there is an attitude of lawlessness in our country that springs from, I don't know where. <laughs> you don't? Progressives don't understand. They don't understand 
human nature. They fundamentally don't believe that consequences for bad action can change people's actions. They don't believe that because they have, in my opinion, a whole misunderstanding about how human beings and societies function, which is why their policies are always so destructive. Well, here's the difference. London Breed lives in San Francisco. She's actually going to have to answer True. to her constituents who are going through it. Nancy Pelosi's she's not there. Like I said, she's going to be at the beach. She's going to be in D.C. at the Georgetown cocktail party. She's not have to deal with this. And even if she right. were there, she wouldn't have to deal with it with her highfalutin life and her gazillion dollar ice cream and her refrigerator. I mean, like she's got more money than God. So she really should probably stay out of it unless she's going to do more good than harm. Uh, all right. Let's switch gears because they, we've been following. I know you've been following this case of the. Um, UPenn swimmers. The women's team at the University of Pennsylvania, it's an Ivy League school. And the women there, actually, there was some some eye-opening honesty in one of the Daily Mail pieces. I think I read about it. Outkick's been doing a great job. They said, look, in the Ivy League, you get a great degree, but like they're not really known for winning a ton of trophies in competitive sports. And um, that's where enter this new trans swimmer, right? She now goes by Leah Thomas. Um, and Leah, of course, was a man and is remains a biological man, but identifies as female and has been allowed to swim with the female swimmers. Um, and Leah's crushing it. She's crushing all the other female swimmers by a mile. I mean, she had like something like 40 seconds off of somebody else's time. I mean, it's just it's 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 just brutal. And the women slowly but surely are speaking out, saying, I'm not allowed to say anything, but I totally object. It's grossly unfair. And then another one came out and said, I'm not allowed to say anything. The, co- the coach is just loving winning. They're like our coach is lo- loving finally putting ports on the board. Oh, who's a man, of course. So um, they're not allowed to speak out because they said they're, they want to get jobs after they graduate. If they even speak out about this, Allie Beth saying, hey, I'm a swimmer. I worked hard to get here. Can I just like I hate the fact that I'm at best going to get second place? No, bigot. They know very well the landscape they're walking into. So finally, their parents wrote a letter to the school saying, this is awful. Like you, our daughters should not be the ones who have to handle this, to speak out about it. They shouldn't have to be worried about risking their career. You, you do something about it, University of Pennsylvania. You make that coach do something about it. You create a third league. But fairness to just this one trans student does not mean fairness, period. The other girls who are on that squad deserve fairness too. And this isn't it. And University of Pennsylvania responded so far by saying, may we refer you to the following mental health clinics. So basically send your lunatic daughters to get therapy for their anger. But we're not getting rid of the source of the anger. Well, now I'm angry, too. Wow. How ironic is that, that they that they are sending the people who are affirming reality and are bearing the brunt of reality by losing to this person to mental health facilities as if they are the ones that are in the wrong. When it like if you watch an interview with this person whose name is now apparently Leah Thomas, I mean, you watch this and and this it feels like satire. It honestly does that I'm watching this person with a, a deep voice, broad shoulders, very muscular, very chiseled, obviously an athlete, and he swam. I think what you said he swam for UPenn was ar- already pretty good. Took and now one year off. Took one year yeah, off to do some testosterone rock suppression. And I'm, I'm watching him in an interview talk talk about this, and I'm like, really? People are going along with this? So I just want to encourage the women who are speaking up about this. I'm sure many of them they probably describe themselves maybe as trans allies or progressive. I'm sure they're not all, you know, 
right wingers who are pushing back against this. But now that they are bearing the consequence of really living in this kind of post-truth, absurd uh, reality that we live in, they're speaking up. I just want to encourage them to continue to do that because you're not just speaking up for yourself. You're speaking up for the young girls that are coming after you that are looking for scholarships that are working really hard right now and deserve to be able to compete fairly. Having Leah Thomas compete against women is not fairness for Leah Thomas. That's actually special privileges yes. for one person at it the is. expense Good of point. the fairness for everyone else. That's right. It's not she is not on an equal playing field. You cannot let someone live as a man and develop male femurs, male muscles, male long right. arms, male height, male strength, all of it. A bigger heart pumps more uh, blood, more oxygen in the body. And then say after one year of just suppressing one little piece of being a man, the testosterone, he's a woman. That's not a woman. He has natural advantage. He's been training effectively with testosterone his entire life, her, whatever. And to put to then let this person get in the pool and say everything's equal. And if you don't like it, you're a bigot is deeply wrong. And and this is why they've made such an example of J.K. Rowling. They mean to scare mm. these young women on the college campuses and the high school campuses and their parents. Just today, there's a headline out about J.K. Rowling. It's incredible to me. Created Harry Potter, of course. She's the one who came up with Fantastic Beasts, right? And they, they made a movie out of it. And, and when they released the trailer for the movie the first time around, it was saying, brought to you by J.K. Rowling, because her name is, of course, associated with this wonderful brand. Now they've released another trailer. I don't know if it's a part two or what it is, but um, no, it's brought to you by Warner Brothers. J.K. Rowling's teeny tiny little. You need the magnifier to actually even see it on the. Tra She's been erased. There's there's one feminist group in London that's saying to to consciously detach a probably the most brilliant and accomplished female author in modern day history from her own work because she took a position that women are women, <laughs> that there is such a thing as biological sex is outrageous. Yes, it's outrageous. And she has tried so hard to be as nuanced as possible to caveat her position, to try to say over and over again that she loves trans people, that she wants people to be comfortable with who they are, but she is just against having to deny reality. And of course, she got lambasted the other day for calling out this new policy, apparently that's happening in the UK, where if someone who is accused of raping a woman, if a man who is accused of raping a woman says that he is a woman, then the police have to write down that this person is a woman that raped this other woman. I mean, think about how confusing Wait, that what? is, how difficult that is. Yes. How did I so miss the story? Yes, she called this out. She said, you know, she quoted 1984, war is peace, freedom is slavery. And that penis individual who just raped you is actually a woman. And of course, people got very angry at her for this. And I love that she's doubling down because she's speaking up not just for women's fairness, but also for safety. Think about the implications and the consequences if you cannot even accurately report the person who assaulted you because of these identity issues. This is a big deal. And I'm just proud of her for continuing to put herself on the line for people who don't have the same platform that she does. Same. That's right. And look, she's doing it. These girls speaking out anonymously to OutKick, that was very brave. And I understand why they didn't put their names to it. Hopefully one day they'll find the courage to do that, like the Connecticut runners to whom came on this show by yes. name and, and talked about what they'd been going through. You can find a way forward. You're not alone. You're not allyless. 
by taking this position. And they'll call you all sorts of names, but most of the country and indeed world will understand and probably agree with you. We have so much more to go over with Ali Beth. I don't like, I don't, I'm not sure you're going to be able to leave. I just, I do we have to do the commercial? Okay, I'll today? Stay. Oh, we do. All day. Okay, we, yes, there's so much. All right, we'll get right back to it. Um, you know, you can find the show live on Sirius XM Triumph Channel 111 every weekday at noon east. Full video show uh, at youtube.com slash Megan Kelly and clips. If you want the audio podcast, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher. Um, and by the way, leave me a review, a five star review that helps. And leave me a comment because I will read it and I will incorporate it into the show. I've already done many of those. Don't go away. And in your meantime, in your spare time, check out Ali Beth in episode 130 when you see our archives. Don't go away. So Ben Affleck, ugh, back in the news, decided to give an interview to Howard Stern. Howard Stern always gets the best things out of people. He's just very disarming. I've been on that show. He's very disarming. And you say things you didn't plan to say. Um, and he got him talking about his first wife, Jennifer Garner. He's with JLo now. They're not married, but who knows? Um, and he made a comment of if I were still married to her, Jennifer Garner, I'd, I'd still be drinking. He's an alcoholic and um, said he felt trapped in his marriage. He did say some nice things about Jennifer Garner, too. But those are the things that made the headlines. Because she stood by him. She got him into rehab. She's the mother of his children. She's an all around sweetheart. You never see negative reports about Jennifer Garner. She really is a nice person. Um, and there was the predictable backlash. So just sitting around on my couch the other day, yesterday, I see like four articles pop up, like people and all the usual suspects that cover entertainment. Him like trying to dig his way out. Clearly, his PR person realized you're an idiot. Uh, and then it continued last night on Jimmy Kimmel, where he said the following. I had gone on and said, like, how much we respect each other and cared about each other and cared about our kids and put them first and went through our stuff. And he said that I had blamed my ex-wife for my alcoholism. And I would never want my kids to think I would ever say a bad word about their mom. because This I really upset you. I mean, obviously. It hurts my feelings, yeah. huh? It hurts his feelings, Ali Beth. It hurts his it's about him still. Right, right. Well, he did say it. And I understand no one likes to be taken out of context or misunderstood. And I've never been on the Howard Stern show, probably never will. But I but believe that, you I would buy a ticket to that. Yeah, I believe you when when you say that he is disarming. And so maybe he really didn't mean to say what he said. But as you said, he's still making it about him. He's saying that, oh, that hurt my feelings when rather just take responsibility and say, look, I'm responsible for the words that I say. And I should have never said something that could even be interpreted as me speaking negatively to my wife in a way that my children could one day read about or hear. I think that's the biggest travesty here. I mean, Jane Garner, I think that she is such, she seems like such a pure sweetheart and all of the content that she puts out is just so joyful and sweet. It's hard for me to even understand how anyone can utter a negative word about her. But I just think that he needs to, he needs to be a little bit more discerning in the things that he says, not just for PR reasons, not just because it might hurt his feelings if someone misinterprets him, but because they've got children in the mix. And that to me is the biggest travesty of all of this that now they'll, they'll read about that one day. Yes. Oh my God. And he knows better. It's not like he's some rube when it comes to PR and what the press is going to do. But I agree with you. I, 
I don't really care that he said other things that are nice about her. He said he felt trapped in that marriage and that his kids were the only thing keeping him there. And he said that if he were still married to Jennifer Garner, he'd still be on the bottle. That yeah. how is she supposed to take it? And according to you know reports, not her directly, uh, they say she's not okay. She's quote not okay with what he said. She said yeah. it feels like a slap in the face. Or a representative said that's how she feels. Of course it does. This guy, he's so holier than thou, right? This is the same person who said he wouldn't even act across from another actor if he knew he were a Republican. That's how high and mighty and moral he wants us to believe he is. Meanwhile, it's like. You say this stuff about her. You're obviously in a fake relationship with Jennifer Lopez. That is just a PR cover for her disastrous breakup with A-Rod. I'm telling you, that's what's going on here. Uh, And, you know, a lifetime of bad choices on his part. And we're supposed to look at him now and accept, oh, you're you feel sorry for yourself. Your feelings are hurt. I don't care. I don't care whether your feelings are hurt. This one's not about you. It's about your ex-wife who we do happen to care about. All right. Enough of him. Um, I'm, I'm over him. All right. Billie Eilish. So she's been making some interesting headlines lately, and I saw you tweet about one of them with respect to porn. Can you fill us in? Yes. So Billie Eilish, I think she's about 19 years old, and she has just, her star has risen a lot over the past couple of years. She's a very popular singer, for those who don't know. She's also very uh, eclectic um, in in her brand and in the image that she conveys, which is, it's very interesting. She seems Mm. kind of like, a darker person, which is why I think the story that I'm about to fill you in on is a little bit surprising. Um, she's very outspoken about being, you know, pro-choice and things like that. But she went on the Howard Stern show. Once again, Howard Stern giving us the content right. uh, that we need. She said that uh, porn devastated her and it devastated her brain because she apparently first saw pornography when she was only 11 years old. And she said it didn't stop at just, I don't know, regular pornography, but she said that it got to the point where she couldn't even like pornography or be attracted to what she was seeing in pornographic videos unless it was very violent. So we're talking about BDSM kind of stuff, strangulation. And she said that it really messed with her brain to the point where she said on the Howard Stern show that the first few times that she had sex, She couldn't get into it or she thought that she was also supposed to be in pain. She was also supposed to be violated or assaulted in some way. And she thought that that was normal and uh, a regular form of sexual satisfaction. And she said that she is basically against porn, that as a woman, she thinks porn is a, a tragedy. And I'm so glad that she's speaking up about this kind of stuff there. Unfortunately, I've heard of reports of trends on TikTok where young girls as young as, you know, 11, 12 years old are apparently talking about on TikTok, their so-called sexual kinks of being strangled. I mean, we're talking about preteens that are now normalizing this kind of sexual perversion that can get people not just hurt, but killed. So good job for Billie Eilish pushing past what she probably felt like was shame and talking about the tragedy that is pornography. Um, So good for her for being honest about it. I'm really sad that that happened to her, though. You know what else, Ali Beth, you think about it. I mean, I've got two daughters and a son. I mean, sorry, two daughters, two sons and a daughter. Who am I? And um, I think about it. I, we've been warned by everybody that the average like 11 year old boy has seen it by that age, certainly by 12. Yeah. And um, so I think about it a lot with respect to my boys. I this is like literally the first time I've thought about it with respect to my daughter. I just don't think of it as a girl thing. Right. Stupid, stupid. Right. I mean, it, it's it's ubiquitous. So 
you have to be vigilant about keeping boys and girls away from it. And I guess I just didn't think a girl could be sucked into it, right? Because yeah. boys are so super driven by hormones and so on when they're in their pu- pu- right. puberty years and girls not as well much. There, are di- there are different avenues now i think that you're correct in that girls aren't as driven by visuals and objects and things like that but when you think about the rise of social media i think what's happening is that girls are going on social media and just like all people but especially girls you like to get affirmation you like to build relationships you like attention and so they're getting these messages and comments and likes from maybe older people. And it just kind of is a slow fade and a progression, probably into not just pornographic material, but really inappropriate and predatory relationships. I think mm-hmm. that is probably usually how it happens for girls. Whereas maybe a curious, you know, preteen or teenage boy might actually just Google an image and that's how you get sucked into it. So I think it's probably different initiations, but the end result is the same. It really hurts their souls, their hearts, and their minds. It's great to hear somebody like Billie Eilish in the world of rock and roll, you know, music, which is full of debauchery that's usually celebrated, say something like this, right? The messaging for kids these days is so much the opposite. It's all about like celebrating kink, which now gets taught in the schoolroom and the books that are handed to them. It's great to have somebody like Billie say, hold on. And let me tell you how that continues to damage me to this day. All right. Let me ask you about the Sex and the City reboot. That used to be considered racy back when I was in my 20s. That show was racy. Um, And now they have a reboot. You know how they do with like Friends and the others. And this one's called And And Just Like That. Um, it's getting panned because they've wokeified it. They're sort of trying to poke fun at woke by showing Miranda, for example, incapable of saying the right thing and stepping all over. So she's clearly read Kendi, D'Angelo. It's getting ripped. The right doesn't like all the nonsense, a hyper obsession on woke. The left doesn't like the way they did the woke characters, keeping them in the periphery and not delving into any of their real characters. It's just there for, you know, truly for color. Um, what do you make of it? You know, my husband and I were talking about this the other day. It was some movie that I, I can't remember what it was that the company decided that they were going. I think it was. Oh, it was it was a show Gossip Girl, which was big when I was in yeah. high school. They're now remaking it with non-binary and and woke characters. And my husband and I were like, so do these companies just decide? Did they sit down in a conference room and say, how can we make less money? How can we take something that was really good and popular and make it bad by talking about things that really no one wants to be entertained by and we're probably not going to be able to create in a way that is actually successful? It's so bizarre to me how someone takes something that was actually popular and then seems to purposely make it worse. I don't right. I don't really get that. I wasn't really a fan of Sex in the City. It was kind of before my time, so I don't really care about its demise. But I think President Trump was correct when he says when he said that everything woke turns to you know what? That was yeah. correct. That seems to be true. <laughs> Allie Beth Stucky, so good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. Up next, a personal story, not mine, a man's personal story about a vaccine injury that you are not going to want to miss. Don't go away. In recent days, we have been hearing a lot about some serious side effects from the COVID vaccines, especially the Pfizer and Moderna jabs. While very, very rare, they are rare, uh, there's been hundreds of millions of vaccines, they are out there. They do exist. 
uh, and young men in particular are at risk of developing heart issues. My next guest is one of them. Professional mountain bike racer Kyle Warner is 29 years old and says he started experiencing problems weeks after his second Pfizer shot. Six months later, he is still struggling. Kyle, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. It'll be kind of a cool little experience to chat with you, and I'm excited just to, yeah, have a combo. Awesome. Me too. Well, I'm sorry that it requires any courage, but I know you've gotten weird <laughs> backlash for telling this story, which is our country in 2021, soon to be 22. We'll get to that, but let's start at the yeah. beginning. So you, you're you a, tell, tell us what you do professionally, because I don't understand this world. I actually found it pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm a professional mountain bike racer. And what that means is we basically climb up to the top of the mountains and then we'll end up racing down um, kind of single track, almost like hiking trails that are designed for bicycles. And it's a timed run and whoever goes down the trail the fastest ends up winning. And so they add four or five of those race stages um, together throughout the weekend and then the lowest cumulative time wins. But on any given day, you know, we'll be pedaling four, five, six hours throughout the day and then racing, you know, three to four stages throughout the day that are two to five minute sprints, sometimes a little bit longer than that. But in a day, we'll probably be on the bike for five or six hours. It's pretty um, physically intensive for sure. Yeah. You must be incredibly fit. I, yeah, I was. For, <laughs> I definitely was and have been in the past. Um, it was one of the things I've worked on really hard ever since I was a teenager. I started racing when I was 16 and basically ever since then. So I think 12, 12 years or so now. Um, yeah, it's been my full time passion and just everything I love to do. And honestly, it's kind of been what's kept me sane too. like had a pretty rough childhood growing up. And, you know, my brother and my mom had a lot of um, battles with different forms of addiction. And so one of the things that kept me out of that whole world was the bicycle. And then, yeah, it was kind of my ticket to a better life. So I really, mm -hmm. I really love it. And I miss it a lot. I've read you say um, something to the, some, you, you were asked, what was your most embarrassing moment? You said, well, I, you know, I don't know if I could choose one, but I used to be a chubby kid who got bullied at school. <laughs> but it was yeah. sweet because then you said, but you know what? It was because we were low income and that yeah. was the cheap food. And I didn't know any better at that time. And and you learned more and you turned your life around. You actually took a moment to learn some lessons from it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the the saddest things is like, you know, when you are in that situation, especially when we were really low income and I was like the chubby broke kid at school. And I mean, we were just eating Wonder Bread and Top Ramen every single day. So I didn't know any better. And that's just kind of the situation I was in. And then once I started to go through schooling, I had a really cool class in junior high that taught me how to read food labels. And then I was like, oh, my God, this whole world opened up. And that was when I really kind of took control of my health. And ever since then, it's been a really big passion and focus. And yeah, I've just never really had health issues up until, you know, six months ago. And I've just been kind of battling through this whole thing, which has been an eye opener of just kind of how broken the medical system really can be. And um, yeah, I'd love to, you know, talk about it. But yeah, you know, well, and then I was going to say, and, and then more and then more <laughs> bullying came your way. Yeah. And that's been the hardest thing. Like, I've talked to so many different doctors and specialists all around the world that have varying viewpoints. And I think the one thing that is in common is just the fact that we're not having open discourse and we're not allowing for open discourse. And because of that, people are the ones that are suffering, you know, like yeah. people are the people that are not getting the proper treatment. And they're not actually able to do all these different experimental things. There's really no idea of what's happening in the body and why people are having these reactions. And they're not even really willing to study it because people are afraid of getting canceled or getting you know, basically their funding pulled or getting fired mm -hmm. from their position if they well, I, come out against the vaccine because I, you're considered anti-vaccine, not pro-science, you know? 
And I should ask you that. I mean, underneath that that black baseball cap you're wearing, is there a red <laughs> cap that reads MAGA? Are you like, no. I mean, you know, that's what people are going to go to. You know, I've always been an independent. And my mom, I mean, my mom's a Democrat who's been that way her whole life. And I don't know, it's it was funny hearing that because I do live in Boise, Idaho. And, you know, my girlfriend's from here and it's such a great community here. But I've, I've always been independent. And it's just like, I don't know, I, it's sad that if you have a question, I mean, I got vaccinated, right? And I wasn't one of the people that posted a sticker saying, I did my part, you should do yours too. I just kind of did it in quiet. I just wanted to do my part in May. You know, our president had said, if you get vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. You know, you can't catch COVID, you can't spread COVID. You know, it just kind of opened up all these doors to the possibilities of getting life back to normal. And also it made me feel like I needed to do my part as a citizen. And I mean, all the ads, the thing that really has bugged me the most is, it has always said this vaccine is safe and effective, period. And there was no side effects may include like, you know, any other ad on TV. If they do an ad for Claritin, it's all the side effects that may happen after that medication. And it's almost like right now, if you even speak about the possibility of a side effect, then you're considered anti-vax, even though, right. you know, I, I went through and I did it. Obviously, like I wasn't anti-vax enough to to not get you know, it. A, so I don't know. It's, it's annoying just to me. Weird... I just realized this. Like I am pro vax. I genuinely have that position, but not mandate. But I'm annoyed at the fact that why, why do I have to keep saying it? It's none of anybody's business, right? It's like, boy, because yeah. YouTube gets upset if we do a segment about a vaccine side effect, unless we both say we're pro-vax. Well, screw that. What if we're not pro-vax? We are yeah. pro-vax, but what if we're not? We should be able to say that yeah. and then still do this segment. This is America. All right, let's get to it. So you yeah. get your first and shot with Pfizer too, in May. And it went fine, as I understand, no, no side effects. And then take us to the yeah. second shot. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, my mom actually got vaccinated. I think it was in May and March or April. So she got it in that time frame. And then a lot of our neighbors who are nurses and doctors, like we live in a nice neighborhood now. There's a lot of people that are getting vaccinated early on, kind of working in the hospital system. So we talked to them. Everyone had had no problems so far. It was great. You know, and so my girlfriend and I decided to make that decision. We wanted to kind of do our part went in, got the shots. And the first dose was no problem at all. And I actually, we walked out of there and it was like a good feeling, you know, it was, it felt like we were one step closer to being through this whole ordeal with COVID. And so it was a good feeling. And I was just reflecting on that yesterday of how nice it felt to go in, you know, they draw basically this much clear fluid, they inject it in your arm, you're 15 seconds, you're out the door. And I remember thinking like, I wonder why there's such a huge fuss about this. And I, I was naive to the fact that there wasn't, you know, it wasn't even approved. I didn't actually know that, you know, I, I just kind of heard what they were saying on the television. They said, do your part, get vaccinated, safe and effective. You know, you're going to need it at some point. And I was like, okay, let's, let's do it. It must not be that big of a deal. And then come to find out, you know, the second dose, I hadn't had any side effects after the first dose, the second dose I went in and right upon them administering it, I tasted it and it was kind of like a saline solution taste. It was really weird feeling. But as soon as he injected it, I just felt my whole body kind of flush and I tasted it really bad. And that didn't go away for a few hours. Like I was still had the remnants of it just in my mouth. And I was like, man, this is so weird. And I started kind of looking online, trying to figure out, does, is this a normal side effect? Or, you know, is this normal? I asked the guy, he's like, I don't know, you know, I haven't heard anyone talk about that yet. So after that, um, about two weeks after my second dose, I started to have some weird heart palpitations. And Basically, just throughout the day, I'd be sitting on the couch or, you know, working on the computer and my heart would just kind of run away from me. And what I mean by that is I'd be at a resting heart rate, maybe around 60, just feel really normal. My heart rate would go up to like 110, 120. 
and I'd get kind of flushed and then I'd go sit down or lay down and I'd be able to calm it down. And it was to the point where I actually just completely cut out all caffeine. I cut out a lot of the sugar, like anything in my diet that I thought could maybe be causing just my heart to kind of be overactive. Mm-hmm. And so that was going on for about a month, kind of off and on. And then July 12th, um, I went for my first bike ride really in a few weeks because I think I rode two weeks after my shot. Then I started to feel a little bit funny, had two more weeks of just downtime, went for another bike ride. And then that's when I had the big episode of my heart kind of running away from me. And I ended up in the ER the first time. Whoa. Can, can you describe that? Yeah. So, you know, my girlfriend and I went on a bike ride and just super normal. And we were climbing for maybe five to eight minutes. And usually a heart rate will get up when you're climbing, obviously, so it's not a big deal. But I started to feel kind of just like flushed and a little bit sick. And I wasn't sure what was going on. And one of our friends that was with us was like, dude, you don't look good. Like, are you, what's going on? You know, and I, I was like, man, I don't feel good. I don't feel normal. I don't know what's going on. So we went back down to the van and I laid down and I was like deep breathing, just kind of resting, trying to figure out what was going on. And I couldn't get my heart rate to come down below 130. And it just kind of stuck there. And so the way I was measuring that is I had a, you know, Garmin activity monitor. And so I was looking at that and I couldn't get it to come down. And so we ended up heading to the hospital and um, yeah, I sat there for three and a half hours in the waiting room and was just telling them like something's up with my heart. I don't know what's going on. And, you know, I think earlier that week or a day or two prior, I had read the big press release where it said um, heart issue or, you know, pericarditis, myocarditis possible with the vaccine. And it said mRNA vaccine. So I just kind of cataloged that. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I never I didn't know that was a possibility when I got the shot. And then now Mm. I'm like, oh, it's interesting that in Europe, especially they're seeing a lot of people have issues in young men with their heart. And so when I went into the hospital, I said, I don't know what's going on with my heart. I think it may be a reaction to the vaccine because I got the Pfizer vaccine, you know, about a month ago and I've never had heart issues before, you know, so I'm just kind of ruling things out. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but they are linking a heart issue. I'm having this new heart issue after getting the shot. And the guy was super dismissive about it and just said, no, you're not, you're totally fine. He's like, have you tried pooping lately? I was like, yeah, I, I don't think it's that. He's like, sometimes when you have a tachycardia and you like bear down, like you need to poop, it'll reset your heart rate. And I was like, I, I don't think that's what's going on, man. I think there's something else going on. So anyways, long story short, I was in the hospital, I think six to seven hours that day, just in the waiting room, they did a um, EKG. So they monitored everything. And, you know, they're basically like, we don't know what's going on. Um, our best bet is just give you an anti-inflammatory, see if that can help. So they gave me a big injection of Toradol, which kind of helped just calm everything down. And then, um, yeah, it was interesting because then the doctor came in and was talking to me about how he said, hey, when I was in medical school, I had a lot of workload. I was really stressed out and I got put on antidepressants and kind of anti-anxiety medication and it really helped me a lot. And I think that would be beneficial for you too. And, you know, I was like, thank you, but you know, no, thank you. I think this is just a heart thing I'm dealing with. I don't, I'm only anxious now because my heart is racing and I'm worried about my heart. Yeah. And that was one of the things that was kind of funny to me looking back is just the fact that there, there's a lot of people now that are going through the same experience that are all being diagnosed early on as like an anxiety attack or an anxiety or depression issue. And I just think it's funny that all these people made it through the pandemic that whole year of 2020, you know, without any anxiety or depression issues. And then you get yeah. this vaccine and now you're anxious and that's why you're having these issues. Well, so. here's here's the other question, Kyle. When you were telling your story, I thought, okay, so I'm I'm 51 now. But when I was 27, um, I did have racing heart rate and I went to the doctor and they diagnosed a heart murmur. And mm-hmm. um, 
I was like, maybe he's got a heart murmur. And but you had the tests that I had that showed a heart murmur. Like you, they looked at your heart and they haven't found. Yeah, they that. looked at it. Yeah, they looked at it really briefly on the EKG, and then that was kind of enough for them to say, you know, your heart rate's really high. Like my resting heart rate, even in the hospital bed, was like 110. And so then I finally, after the Toradol, it kind of just like knocked me out almost and got me to be super relaxed. And then my heart rate dropped to 90 something. And he's like, look, <laughs> you're normal. And I was like, no, I'm on drugs. Resting heart rate. <laughs> yeah, I'm like my resting heart rate's usually 55. And so I told him this is almost double my normal heart rate, you know, and it wow. might look weird because I'm an athlete. So it doesn't look like it's really, really, really elevated. But for me, it's almost double my normal heart rate. And that was, I think, one of the things that was a struggle point is if you're a healthy, young person, it's really difficult for them to kind of diagnose a lot of things, it seems like, just because you don't fit the norms. And so if you're having a problem, they're like, well, it must not be that bad. But it was it was enough for me to feel like I was going to, you know, potentially have a heart heart attack or have something happen. And well, and but that's exactly PR. the group that is getting this, the, the heart side effects is young men. Mm -hmm. And also to, to a lesser extent, some women, but it's young people. It's, it's people yeah. in your age group over 12. Um, and yeah, under the 40. 19 group. So there's a big support group that kind of pulled me in throughout the past few months. And um, they said that the average age of the vaccine injury is 33 years old. And that was before they approved it for the five to 12 year olds. Mm -hmm. So it is affecting younger, younger people disproportionately, which is kind of why I think this is such a good conversation that needs to be had, because if it's affecting younger people who are theoretically at lower risk of COVID, but then the older people who are at higher risk of COVID are not being as affected, then I mean, that that's something we should look into, right? Like if you're going to push people to be mandated to get this when they're at very, very, very low risk of COVID, and then they're at a higher risk of vaccine injury versus the older people who right. maybe are at a really high risk of COVID and a low risk of vaccine injury. And, you know, when you ask those questions of like, why is this happening? They're, the doctors aren't even really allowed to discuss it or talk about it together or in public because it's looked at as a taboo subject. And a lot of the doctors I'm working with talking with now, they're basically saying there's a few components at play. But one of the big things that could be happening is an autoimmune issue. And basically, the, the more robust your immune response, the more likely you are to have this reaction. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that if you're a more vascular, young, fit person, then it's maybe a little bit more likely they're going to accidentally inject it into a capillary or into your bloodstream. So mm -hmm. there could be some very simple things that we could adjust to try to figure out what's going on. But I just think it's sad that we're not even able to have this Can conversation. Well, yeah, no, look at, I mean, yeah. this is why all these professional athletes are very wary about taking the vaccine. They have, they make their livings off of their, their athleticism, their bodies, their yeah. fitness, their wellness, and their systems are going pretty well. You're making millions of dollars in the NBA or the NFL and they don't want to mess with it. And they're being told yeah. they must. I, I read you say, um, you're not anti-vax, but you established, but you said, quote, I believe where there is risk, there needs to be choice. Where there is yeah. risk, there needs to be choice. So well said. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of where it goes back to those commercials where it says COVID vaccines are safe and effective, period. Come in and get your shot today. They're not saying these are predominantly safe and effective and most people will do completely fine because that seems to be the case is out of the millions and millions of doses, most people are fine. But if you are one of those few people that's at a higher risk of a reaction and you do have a reaction, then right now the kind of sentiment is just like, you know, screw, like screw off. 
you know, we don't right. want to deal with you. And it's really, it seems angry. Thing. It does seem like anger results to the people who have come out and said vaccine injuries, disbelief, gaslighting, and then anger yeah. from the very same people who who push us all to get them and call us bad if we don't. It's like, how are you, yeah. how can we live in a society like that where you get shamed if you choose not to get it? You finally get shamed or mandated into getting it. You do your part, you get it. And then if you say something happened to me, you're the bad guy. Yeah. And I mean, I, I can understand where they're coming from, from a, a standpoint of fear, you know, like at the end of the day, COVID has been just a nightmare for so many people. And it's just so many people want to get through this and want to get over it. And they don't want to have to be, af you know, afraid of what's going on. And if you're based on an operating system of fear and you're afraid of COVID right now, and you're just like scared, you want COVID to be over and there's this solution. And, you know, all the media that you're watching is telling you, this is completely safe and effective and people aren't getting it just because they're shills or, you know, they're just, they're idiots. It's like, no, there's actually a lot of data that's conflicting on, on this. You know, there's, there's both sides of science. And that's one thing that's been tough is they say, trust the science, but what side, you know, cause if you want me to trust this side, then I can show all the data showing all the injuries. And then, you know, you look at this side, you show all the data showing that it's completely safe and effective. But if that's the case, then why does a drug company have zero liability? You yeah, know, well, it's they, like, they, because they were granted zero, zero liability by by the feds in order to get them to pump yeah. out these vaccines and also keep the cost low. Um, yeah. And the I thought feds. it was interesting. <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought it was interesting, too, that there's been such a hard push to say, you know, these shots are free, you know, come down and get your free shot. It's like it's not free. It's it's right. free to you, but someone's paying, you know, and and someone's making money. And that's been the whole thing with me speaking out on this whole topic, like. I'm not trying to discourage people. I'm not trying to be, you know, create vaccine hesitancy. But from my friends, I know that are not vaccinated. One of the reasons that they're hesitant to get vaccinated is for one, it seems like there's a lot being hidden and there's a lot being censored and it makes them feel, you know, that they don't want to trust what's going on because they're like, if you guys are running $10 million lotteries in California for me to get vaccinated, like, why, <laughs> you know, mm. like what's going on? And that's just where they're coming from. So I think I'm trying to do my part and just open this conversation up. And there has been a lot of great um, data coming out. And I've had several friends who were not vaccinated who watched my interview with Dr. John Campbell, where he really kind of went into the depth of um, aspirating or pulling back on the syringe to make sure you don't get it in a blood vessel or a mm -hmm. vein. And after they watched that video, they went and got vaccinated and asked the nurse to aspirate. So, you know, there's people that are right on the edge and they just want more information. It's not like because that was that was one theory that that may be the reason you felt you had that weird taste in your mouth immediately was that it didn't go into your muscle. It went into a vessel, which you, the doctor yeah. suggested could be to, to blame. I want to get into um, the, the other symptoms and what specifically we think is wrong. So, Kyle, you posted a video in the midst of dealing with the racing heartbeat, heartbeat and trying to figure it out, we condensed just a short soundbite to show people kind of what you were dealing with. This is um, soundbite 14. So this is just from walking in from the truck. Um, basically just from out there to here. It went from 110 to 130. And then as soon as I start walking, it just starts to rise. So I just changed my shorts and um, I'm at 142 now. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, you know, I mean, 142 looks like exercise for even a non-fit person uh, yeah. who's relatively thin. Yeah, and I guess we didn't. I didn't do a very good job of kind of finishing up my uh, hospital story. But after I ended up in the first hospital, they discharged me. Four days later, I ended up back in the hospital with like a really severe heart cramp and then like really severe burning. And I thought I was having kind of a minor heart attack. 
we went in, they listened to me a lot better. I went to a different hospital this time. And then they referred me to a cardiologist kind of right away. I went in, I got an echocardiogram and like the ultrasound on your heart. And they found that I had pericarditis, which is one of the uh, known effects of the vaccine injury from the mRNA vaccines. And then a few months later, so I was dealing with that. I got put on a course of colchicine or colchicine, which colchicine, but anyways, it's a medication for reducing the pericarditis. I was on that for a few months. Um, they ended up doing a cardiac MRI, got that all cleared. And I was still having a lot of symptoms. And then we did a stress test and I got diagnosed with something called POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So that was where a lot of my issues were coming from. And then I've also been dealing with a, a really elevated IgE level and a lot of new allergies, um, which have been kind of, we're figuring out is one of the components of all the joint pain that I've been dealing with as well. So what's I didn't do a good job of explaining that at first, but no, no. what's IgE? The IgE is like your immunoglobulin type E. So I guess from my understanding, it's kind of a marker of how inf inflam uh, of how much inflammation response you're going to have to different allergens entering your system. So mm. like a healthy IgE level is something under 115 and then like a high IgE level. So if someone who's going to have a really bad kind of inflammation response, that's going to be around a 250. And then my IgE level is 883. So the doctor told me, my allergist was like, this is one of the highest we've seen and we don't know what's going on. And that, they did like a full skin panel and I was allergic to almost everything now. And it was just really weird because I've never had those issues. But when I kind of put that out there and we're trying to figure this out with this giant support group of people and a lot of other people are having the same things where they're having chronic joint pain. And then after they kind of address their diet or like eliminate a ton of things or do long-term fast, then they can get a lot of their symptoms to Kind of reduce but they, at but least. they put it um, they put the beginning point at the vaccine you know because a lot of that stuff can just happen to you as you get older yeah i mean that definitely could happen and um i guess the biggest thing was the pericarditis is an inflammation response of the heart yeah. and then the pox that's been is also kind of another yeah inflammatory response and then also having all these new sensitivities and allergies and just chronic joint pain um at first they thought i had reactive arthritis which is sometimes a, a side effect of things like this but now they're thinking more of this is like a chronic inflammation from something called mast cell activation syndrome. And so they gave me a new medication I've been taking for a couple of weeks now. That's been helping a lot. Um, just reduce my day-to-day -day pain, which has been awesome. So are you one of those people who's at the doctor all the time? Like, I think I've got cancer. I've yeah. got this, I've got, you know what I mean? Have, oh. Before this, were you that guy? No, I, that was kind of the hard thing is I had to find a primary doctor to help deal with me through this whole process. So I hadn't had a primary doctor. I don't think since I was maybe like 11 somewhere in that age. And then the only time I've been to the hospital really for anything in the past 10 to 15 years has been broken bones. I was going to say, let me guess, given bikes. what you do. Yeah. You saw an <laughs> yeah, but No, I, I haven't had really any health issues at all. So that's why this has been so frustrating. And, you know, I've had over 25 doctors and hospital visits in the past few months. And it sucks Whoa. because I feel like a drain on the hospital system now because I'm just constantly in there doing different scans and tests and MRIs and CT angiograms and like all these different things. We're trying to figure out what's going on. And I don't know, it just, it sucks because when I, like when I go to my cardiologist's office, I sit down in the waiting room and it's all like 60 and 70 year old guys that yes. are around me. And then I'm just like a young athlete and they're like, why are you in here? And I just tell them, yeah, I had a, I had a bad reaction to the to the COVID-19 vaccine. And then, and then like, the nurse oh comes God. over and puts her hand over your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's been happening lately a lot more. Like I had a really disheartening meeting with my doctor, with my primary doctor yesterday. And I don't know, it's just been tough. Like you saw, I guess that Instagram post I did where it kind of broke down just because yeah. I feel like all I've been trying to do this whole time is just advocate for conversation. Like I'm not telling anyone what to do or what not to do. I'm just saying, 
here is a data point. And if the government isn't acknowledging it and like the drug companies aren't acknowledging it, then at least I can share it and you guys can kind of, you know, form a decision around this, at least knowing mm -hmm. this is possible. Um, and also help people shortcut if they do have an injury or they're having issues, maybe they could say, Hey, I think it's from this. And I don't know, but it's been tough. Cause like my, my doctor had a, had a hard conversation with her yesterday and she was basically like, I can't write you an exemption for any boosters. I can't, um, what? I asked her if, I, yeah, it was crazy. Cause I, I told her, Hey, if for traveling or for anything in the future, if I need to get a booster, like, will you write me an exemption? She's like, well, they're not requiring it for that yet. I said, yeah, but they said they're going to reevaluate the definition of fully vaccinated. And I'm assuming that that will mean at some point I'll need to be fully vaccinated to travel or do anything. Right. And she said, yeah, but I can't write you a blanket exemption from this vaccine. And she said, if something happens, like we can figure it out down the road, but something happened with current policy. Yeah. She's like, with current policy, I'm not able to write you an exemption. And so I was like, that's insane. What do you mean? She's like, your, rea your reaction as of now was not bad enough to, to write you an exemption. I'm like, all right. So I haven't been you able have to, to find work a different doctor. Yeah, th th she's a kook. Get rid of her. Well, I'm trying to, but it's hard the way that my insurance is structured now. It's like I have to go through her for a lot of the referrals and everything. And it's just been tough. Like one of the things that's been helping a lot of people, um, Brianne, who's the leader of the React 19 support group, she's been doing intravenous immunoglobulin treatment. It's called IVIG. And there's a lot of data showing that it's helping people with post-vaccine syndrome. And we're not really sure what the mechanism is, but it's been helping a lot of the people with more neuropathy. So like neurological issues. And so I asked my doctor about that and she's like, it's not an approved treatment for what you have going on. So I can't do anything, you know, and, and same with kind of everything else that's happening right now, since, since there is no infrastructure built around what are the possible side effects and what are the possible treatments, then you're just kind of out of luck, you know, and oh, it's, I it's so frustrating. Work. Like Botox is not an approved treatment for wrinkles, but it works. I'm like, yeah. Not everything gets so, the final stamp of approval. And by the way, as you point yeah. out, the vaccines, they've been giving them to adults and kids without the final stamp of approval for some time. So it's like, why are we allowed to have the vaccine when it's not doesn't have final approval, but you can't have some of the treatments, according to her, unless they've gotten the final seal. Yeah, that's what's been tough is like, I just keep telling people and a lot of the people in the support group, I think there's almost 10,000 people now in this React 19 support group. And what's crazy is that so many of us have the same story where we went to the doctor, got diagnosed with anxiety, got diagnosed with, you know, oh, you're just maybe crazy. Maybe you're schizophrenic. We don't know what's going on because you think that this is from the vaccine. It's like, no, I'm having severe neuropathy or there's been several cases of transverse myelitis as well, which is where um, basically your spinal cord gets attacked or kind of implicated in this reaction. And there's been a, a few people that have been paralyzed from this, including one of our friends, Maddie, who's 13. And she was actually in the Pfizer clinical trial at 12 years old. So she was in the 12 year old trial to approve it for five to 12 year olds. And she got paralyzed and she's been in a wheelchair since December of 2020. What? And they dropped her from the clinical trial data. They oh, didn't gosh. cite her as an adverse reaction. They cited her as a stomach ache in the data and push that data through to get it approved. You know, it's like, wait, 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 and wait, it sounds crazy. At what, at what age? 12? At 12. So she's 13 now, but Maddie DeGaray, oh. and she spoke in DC at that big press conference we did um, with Senator Johnson and all those people. But it's just tough because, you know, before this, I, I wouldn't have believed all the things that are going on. And, you know, I had no, I had no reason to believe it. You know, I had no no reason to even understand what was happening. And now mm -hmm. it's just like, I don't know. I don't know what to do knowing that I know these people, you know, I'm friends with Maddie and I yeah. see her in a wheelchair and I know that it was from the Pfizer clinical trial and I know that she wasn't counted. So it's just tough.
Oh, it's deeply disturbing. Now, we had another gentleman on the show whose wife was very pro-vaccine. She volunteered for the vaccine trial. That's I mean, you're super pro-vaccine if you volunteer for the trial. And yeah. um, she was seriously wounded and they they took her out of the numbers as well and really have gone dark on them now. Um, yeah. But I do I do want to ask you about the emotional toll, because being told over and over you're crazy, people turning on you as though you're anti-vax or trying to hurt the country just because you're speaking out about this. Yeah. Um, I know it's stressful. And you did. You you posted that follow up video. Uh, this is just this past November. As I understand it, it's after you went to um, Senator Ron Johnson's event where he had people speak out of, uh, about the vaccines and he invited Fauci and he invited Collins. He invited everybody and, and they didn't come. They didn't want to hear from you guys. They didn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, so you took to the Internet and posted a very emotional video. We have just a clip cut. Here it is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I hate my life so much right now. And this, the sad thing is that, like, like I'm getting attacked from both sides so hard, and I'm just a dude. Like, I'm just a guy. I'm trying to just do the right thing. I just want to share my story. What got you to that point, Kyle? Um. That was a really tough day. Like that morning, so I was driving to a doctor's appointment and basically these two women just like, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but that breakdown was about 30% people just kind of constantly just coming and attacking and attacking and attacking. And then it was about 30% taking on the load of all the injured people because I become like this conduit for all these injured people to reach out and ask me for help and what I'm doing. And then it was about 40% just getting back from DC, realizing that Fauci didn't care, realizing that the CEOs of Moderna and Pfizer, they don't care, realizing that none of the senators showed up in support, realizing that we were just, we're an inconvenience right now. And we're in the way of them making a ton of money unobstructed. And that was a big part of it too. It's just, it was a feeling of like, just hopelessness in a lot of ways. And then that morning, these two women just kept coming at me so hard. And I, you know, basically saying, you're a piece of shit. You're a bad person. What's your agenda? What are you trying to get out of this? Why are you trying to get famous? Like, you know, what are you doing? And I was like, I hope you realize that by me speaking out, I've lost a lot of friends. I've lost a lot of family, you know, that is very pro vaccine. And they're saying you shouldn't speak out. You shouldn't have this conversation because it's creating hesitancy. And then I've also had some sponsors, like most of them have been amazing, but it's just been a really strenuous relationship with, with some of them as well, because like, Mm -hmm. I haven't been able to work in six months and, you know, our way of life has changed drastically. I haven't really been able to function really at all. And especially not on a bicycle. And so it's just been really hard. And you know, the lady's like, what's your agenda and how much money did you make from that Dr. Campbell interview? And I told her, you know, Dr. Campbell donated all the money from that, that interview to a charity in Africa. And she's like, well, let me see the receipts. I'm like, that's not, that's not my thing to do. That was his, his Who's thing, this you know, and with somebody online them and then they created new accounts, just kept no, attacking and it's like, like that. Yeah. It's just hard because I don't know. I, I'm afraid for where we're going as a country, honestly, because I understand that if people are saying just nonsensical, completely dangerous things, that that's a problem. But it's almost like everyone right now is acting as an affiliate marketing agent for Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson. Mm-hmm. And it feels unrealistic and unauthentic, you know, and you see all the, the news 
places that are sponsored by Pfizer, sponsored by Moderna. And it's like, how are we supposed to have an honest conversation if you're only hearing from one side? And then if there is this one side that's like this small group of people, they're just getting completely silenced. And I don't know, that's that's where that kind of came from. Have but. you have you been in touch with Pfizer at all directly? No, no one's ever talked to me from them and from VAERS too. You know, I submitted to the VAERS database, never heard yeah. from anybody there. Even after we did the press conference in DC, never heard from a single representative. I never heard from the Idaho representatives. I never heard from anybody. The only person who's been willing to like stand up and talk about this at all has been Senator Johnson. And he's gotten just torn apart for it, among other things he's done, you know, but like, I will tell you that when we went there, he treated everyone that spoke with courtesy. He gave us all a big hug. He was very mm -hmm. kind and wanted us to just get our message out. And I just gave him a huge hug. And I said, thank you for actually listening. You know, like, like you said, when you're just constantly being told you're crazy, it wears on you and it makes you feel crazy. It makes you feel like a bad person. And one of the women in the support group that was there speaking, she came up to me and she gave me a hug and she just was crying. And she said, thank you for speaking out because you're one of the few guys that had an audience before this happened to you. And so because of that, it's harder for people to say you're crazy, you know, because they can look back and they can see, no, you already had an audience. You know, what do you have to gain from this? You have nothing to gain. You know, you've always been a very positive person. You've never been political. You never really gotten involved in any of this. Like the only political thing I ever did in my whole life was get a public pump track, like a free bike track built for kids in my hometown when I was 22. You know, it's like that's the only thing I've ever done. Political. And, you're, and you're not a hypochondriac or a constant medical seeker. None of the red flags that would normally go up on a person's testimonial are, are there. None of them. But they're I've, I'm watching you, Kyle, and I feel like they're driving you there. You know, that that video with the you know, you were talking about how you're, you're not going to commit suicide. And I, I believe you. I'm, I trust you on that. But that yeah. you're thinking about it more and more. Yeah. It's that was just like, in November. Why? Yeah, it's constant. I mean, it's just it feels easier to give up at some point, you know, and it's just like I know that's not the right thing to do. And one of the guys I know who's an ex-military guy, he said something really profound and he said, "When you commit suicide, all you do is you take all of your pain and you pass it on to your loved ones." Mm. And wow. so I know that that's not an option, but it's just it's hard to see a way out of this without just getting completely discredited and, and being told you're crazy. And like, Megan, at the end of the day, all I want to do is I just want to like help other people that are going through this because I know how difficult it is. And this happened to me, my big reaction, like July 12th, I believe was the first day that I was in the hospital. And I spent almost three full months just completely silent because when it first happened to me, it wasn't as, um, welcome of a conversation and I was scared to say anything. And then I posted a really, really just super neutral video on our YouTube channel and said, Hey, this isn't a, this isn't about the vaccine. This isn't anything. This is just why we've been quiet for a few months. And after that, Dr. Campbell saw that video and he heard that I had tasted the shot and he's like, Oh my God, I think this is because they didn't aspirate it. And so he kind of brought me on to do an interview with him. And then a week later, we were in DC or two weeks later. And then it's just been like this snowball. And I feel like I was living my life kind of on this little platform of, you know, the biking channel and helping people learn how to ride bikes and just do a better job of getting out and having positive mental health outlets. And then I got yanked into this conversation and I'm seeing 
what's happening. And I'm seeing that it's a problem and that there's a lot of atrocities being done to people just from the drug companies that are making all the money and also from their medical providers who are afraid to diagnose them with anything. And so right. this is a problem. And I feel like as an, as an adult American male, it's my duty to actually just like shed light on it. You know, if I just hid from it, it would be the wrong thing to do. But yeah, I did. I did have to take a month off because it's like, yeah, I wasn't in a good place. And it's hard because that stress, it affects your healing too, you know, and I've been getting a lot better slowly and it's been six months. But like I said, in my Dr. Campbell interview, a lot of people start to seem quite a bit better at eight or nine months. And if you look at how the vaccines wane over time, it's interesting that it kind of correlates to oh. that time that they're saying, hey, we need to get a booster to re-up this. So maybe there's some That's component where, you know, when the vaccine is at its most robust protection and your body has the most heightened immune system, maybe there's some reaction going on that's causing this inflammatory cascade. And then as it wanes and those antibodies die off, then maybe it, it is lesser. So well, let me let me we, ask you a question. Maybe this is a better question for a doctor. But if you did get the vaccine injected into a vessel instead of into your muscle where it belonged, is this do we call this a vaccine injury or do we call this, you know, sort of a, a a mistake by the injector that and could the injuries have come from the flu vaccine, you know, the tetanus shot? You know yeah. what I mean? Is it is it this vaccine in your vessel and where it went in your body that caused all this? Or is it the fact that you got something in a vessel that you never should have had? No, that's a that's a really good question. And so one thing I will say, there's like kind of two components to this this story argument. And it was administered per CDC guidelines. And the CDC guidelines say do not aspirate because in Can you explain opinion, what aspirate is better? Sorry, what was that? You just explain what aspirate is. So aspirate means you take the needle and when they put the shot in your arm before they depress it and actually inject the solution, they pull back on it slightly to check and see if there's any blood that enters the tube. Because if they get blood in the tube, that shows that they're in a vessel or in a in a vein or artery or, you know, it could be any sort of um, capillary, anything like that. Yeah. So by aspirating, they're able to check that you're in the muscle and only in the muscle. It's a really simple procedure and Moderna and Pfizer both on their, you know, big document that shows how they should administer the vaccines that says intramuscular placement is a must. You must have intramuscular placement. If you get it intravenous or if you get it in a capillary, anything like that, in a lot of the lab tests that they did with mice, the mice that got it injected intravenously, they had heart failure and died. So it's interesting that one of the biggest side effects is heart failure or heart issues. And then yeah, that was also amazing. shown in the mice that got it injected intravenously. And then it's like, it could just be an aspiration thing. But even if it is just that it's not the fault of the the doctor or the pharmacist or any of the people there, it's the fault of the CDC for not having proper guidelines. Mm. Right. And and like, who is doing all the injecting, right? It's like, I don't even I never even asked is this like, you're at the CVS, like, I could go for it. I guess you're qualified. I don't know, you're, you get the white lab coat on. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas normally, and, you, and I do you, definitely, you know, want to say I'm, I'm not a doctor at all. And the only reason I'm kind of so invested in this is like, it's been my full, full life for the past four, five, six months is just how do I get better? And how do I find different things and talk to people that are actually willing to have a conversation. And so at this last interview I did um, last week, I think with Dr. Drew, we talked a bit and then a doctor called in who works with the COVID long hauler group. And he went into a full, you know, kind of diatribe about what's happening, the mechanisms at play versus long COVID and with the post-vaccine syndrome and how similar they are. 
And, you know, they're saying post-vaccine syndrome and long COVID are like cousins. And, you know, there, there's a big research paper coming out in the next couple of weeks that will hopefully highlight that. But I don't know. I just think it's so crazy that they're forcing people to get this thing. And then, you know, when I go talk to my doctor about it, they're like, well, we don't know anything about it. So how are we supposed to treat you? Well, well then why are you forcing it on me? Then why did I have to get it in the first place? Why did I have to? Because that's what's happening now. We're being mandated. I do want to tell the audience the FDA's website now includes information on Pfizer and the heart conditions that have been seen, um, specifically saying data demonstrates the increased risks of myocarditis and pericarditis. One is inflammation of the muscle. One is of the uh, outer lining of the heart, which is what you have, pericarditis, particularly within seven days following the second dose of Pfizer. Other places have thought because of that risk, you should space out the doses more than two weeks. They're doing that in other countries. We're not only not doing that here. There's There's a question about whether you're You'd be considered fully vaxxed if you waited more than the two weeks. That's how lo- lo- our lunacy here seems yeah. to know no end. Kyle, I want to <laughs> say this to you before I go. Thank you for coming on and speaking out. It, I've been in the public eye a long time. It's universal advice. It could apply to you or anybody else. Don't listen to the haters. Don't take on women online who are coming for you. Lean into the love. Lean into the love, not the haters. It, Leaning into the haters will only aggravate your injury, your upset, your pain, and you need to be at your strongest to get through this. So surround yourself with your support group, with people like me, like Dr. Drew, who genuinely want to hear your story um, with get a new doctor. I'm telling you, start planting the seeds because she's a lunatic and understand that you're not alone. And most of the country believes you and doesn't look at you the way these crazy agenda driven ideologues do. Please wrap that around yourself the next time you feel low and know you're you are loved and you're being rooted for. And (laughs) I, for one, am really proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been it's been tough, but it'll it'll get easier. And then yesterday I had someone from factcheckers.org basically threaten me that if I don't give them my medical records, they're going to post a thing about how this is all bullshit. And it's like, (laughs) you know, it's like. Okay, so I, I went and don't and don't respond to anybody with fact my, checker my in letter their, saying, in their hey, email. this actually happened to me and, you know, <laughs> send it to them. And it's like, it's just crazy. I told her, how many times do you have to like, what is there to gain for me as a random person speaking out about this losing tens and tens of thousands of dollars throughout this past year? Like, what, what do I have to gain? And then you look at like what the drug companies have to gain. And it's so well, and much by the way, may I, may I just say are. you haven't even really been posting on it a lot. They're really your 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 social media is mostly your bike stuff. Uh, there's a few yeah. about this and you gave a couple of interviews and that's it. This has been going on for months. So if you were an attention seeker, you're a crappy one. Um, I know that's <laughs> I know. Dr. Drew's like, do you want to plug any of your websites? I'm like, no, <laughs> Kyle, stay well. All the best. Yeah, thank you. Don't miss tomorrow. We got David Zweig back with us. Uh, Really looking forward to that. We'll see you then. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.